Mike. It's me, James A. Smith, and Christmas has come early for popular show listeners. I'm joined by one of the most celebrated and controversial journalists of the moment, the founder of Racket News, Matt Taibbi. Welcome to the popular show. Thanks for having me on. This is great. Thanks so much for making some time uh, for us. Now, um, you were fresh from Congress last week and also appearing on Russell Brand's channel. I'm hoping that this experience is going to be somewhere between the two. Um, and uh, yeah, as I say, it's, it's, it's really great to be with you, Matt. Um, on, on that last um, interview that, that you gave, you, you told Russell that... Um, one of the sort of insiders that you've you've been speaking to in the in the recent work you're doing has had suggested to you that anti-terrorism um, practices and processes within the U.S. government had at a certain point turned into anti-populism measures. That the same approaches um, that that have been turned against terrorism and the war on terror in the early two thousands onward uh, had now found a domestic application. Uh, when I heard that, I felt like the whole kind of thesis of this podcast that we've been doing for the last three years was sort of vindicated. Uh, oh, really? That, uh, okay. Yeah, basically, the, the, we've been chronicling the revenge against populism of both right uh, and left uh, on this show. So I, I found that so interesting when, when you said that. Maybe, maybe you could kind of outline um, how you see that um, that process having taken place. Sure. So uh, just to back up, you know, uh, it was about a year ago this week that we started doing the Twitter files reports. And um, when Elon Musk decided to open up Twitter's files, uh, one of the things that all the reporters involved uh, kind of agreed upon early was that we we would tr try to get material out uh faster than they could do hit pieces on us yeah. um, because we knew that that was going to be coming. Uh, so one of the things that that caused us to do is to uh, leave aside kind of larger themes. So we were noticing things along the way, but they, they were complicated stories we couldn't really get to in real time. So we focused on simple things that we could put out in a couple of days uh, at the beginning, but there clearly one of the big questions that, that uh, came up early was where did these anti-disinformation programs really start? Why are there so many intelligence people involved in them? Mm -hmm. uh, how come so many of these folks have backgrounds from the Joint Terrorism Task Force, the National Security Council, uh, the FBI, you know, we saw JSOC, SOCOM, DARPA. I mean, uh, there were an awful lot of people from pretty odd corners of the Pentagon who were working in like the trust and safety department of Twitter. And we also just didn't know a lot about this domestic censorship operation. Like where, where are these algorithms been developed? Who did this work? So over the course of, um, you know, most la last spring, I started to get calls from people from the defense sector. Uh, and there were some there were some people who were basically upset that things that had been designed to go after Al Qaeda and ISIS were being turned inward on domestic populations. And they, they weren't pleased about it. And they started to talk a little. And one of the people that I talked to was um, involved in one of these operations that was sort of connected to the State Department. 
And, uh, you know, basically his catchphrase was in 2015, 2016, there was a switch and it was, the switch was CT to CP. And that's counterterrorism to counterpopulism. So this, this gigantic machinery that we had built up really to, to counter ISIS messaging, targeting kids in suburban London and Southern California who had been successfully appealed to over the internet, um, that whole mechanism got turned inward against Leavers, the, you know, the Sanders campaign, the Jeremy Corbyn campaign, uh, Donald Trump at home. If you read the, a book called Information Wars by a guy named Rick Stengel, he used to be the editor of Time Magazine, but he was the first head of this thing called the Global Engagement Center in the States. He talks explicitly about how, about the step-by-step -step evolution of that process being influenced by Brexit, Trump, uh, to move this whole uh, sort of anti-terror war that they've been conducting inward. So that's that's the thing. I haven't heard it now from more, far more than one person in that community. Um, and a lot of it just has to do with economics, like the ISIS and, and uh, Al-Qaeda threats. They weren't getting funded as much for that anymore. So they this is their new cash cow. It was a pretty quick turnaround um, from... Uh, a situation where the Hillary Clinton campaign um, ahead of 2016 was pursuing a Pied Piper strategy of actually encouraging friendly journalists to, uh, on the right, to try to get Trump to be the Republican candidate so that uh, they would have what they perceived to be an easier opponent to face off against. Very similar things uh, going on on the left in the UK at exactly the same time, where right wingers were encouraging. Corbyn supporters encouraging Corbyn to run so that they would have what they thought was going to be an easy ride. Um, we flash forward just, you know, a couple of years and the whole um, apparatus has switched around to sort of panic. Trump has won. It looks in 2017 like Corbyn could win. Um, you were, I, I feel like you maybe went through a similar kind of switch around the, the same time. Uh, the, the first work I was conscious of reading of yours was your coverage of the Trump campaign in Rolling Stone, which you put together as a book called Insane Clown President, which I, I always recommend. I think that's a great, important historical document at this point. But there, you were still trying to explain why this mystery of why populism seemed to be succeeding, why Trump was succeeding where right-wing blowhards before him had, had failed. Um, but then we, we only have to go forward a couple of years to find you um, sort of getting an early scent that a lot of the arguments being made against Trump and things being said about him were maybe false. Russiagate, obviously, the big one. How did you um, switch from seeing Trump and populism as something that needed explaining in your work to seeing what we can now call anti-populism, seeing the um, sort of centrist reaction against Trump as, in a way, just as strange and convoluted and secretive a practice. Can, can you describe that um, kind of change in your own thought? Sure. Um, well, what I would say, when I, when I first covered Trump, um, I actually, one of the first stories I wrote was for Rolling Stone. And I think the title of it was uh, How America Made Donald Trump Unstoppable. And, uh, you know, looking back on it, 
I had been covering presidential politics for a long time in America, and I had been hearing with each successive campaign cycle um, sort of a growing level of discontent. You know, it starts off as people being merely a little bit upset to, you know, a sort of blood-curdling rage. Like, that was the, the arc between, say, 2004 and 2016. Um, you know, when you ignore people, uh, you know, election cycle after election cycle, and there's a massive financial crisis in between where there's a huge shift in wealth upward, uh, and, the, you know, the candidates aren't really particularly uh, aware of that. I mean, as, as you've probably, I don't know if it's the same situation in Britain exactly, but in the States, the basically the entire media class and most of the politicians they're so out of touch with what's going on with regular people that they they're not even aware of how difficult things are. And so when Trump came along, I, I so instantly recognized this is going to work, right? Yeah. Like regardless of what I thought about the person, I could feel in the audience that he was scoring a lot of points just by doing things like pointing at the media and saying like, see, these people are out of touch with you. They don't care about you. They want me to lose. They want you to lose. Um, and it was great theater. I mean, as uh, unlike most campaigns, he was uh, getting in touch with something that was sort of physical and um, immediate and menacing uh, in, in these, um, uh, in these campaign appearances, and I remember what you said about his uh, his line about John McCain, um, where you pointed out that historically, someone makes a, a kind of off color remark like that in a campaign, then the next day they apologize, and then the day after that, it's all over. Whereas Trump simply didn't apologize, and people seem to like that. Yeah, yeah, there was a reporter in Iowa who was he called it the seal of death. Like when when somebody screws up, like the dean scream, the reporters kind of. I mean, it, it, this actually happens. It's not a conspiracy theory. They do they do huddle up in the plane and talk about like, mm -hmm. all right, how we're we gonna finish off this guy, um, mm -hmm. and and it's sort of joking, but not really. Uh, with Trump, you know, there there was an immediate decision that this was this person was not uh, fit to be a candidate, and they piled on. And instead of genuflecting before the media, Trump, you know, his peculiar political genius is that he he ha he has no sense of um, shame or fear about about all these institutions. He doesn't think that he ha he has to, uh, you, you know, like bow before them. And his defiance actually sent him rocketing up the polls. And the reporters were terribly confused by this. The, all the politicians were confused by this. I didn't think it was confusing at all. I thought it made a lot of sense. Um, but then I, I, you know, I made the mistake of being talked out of the possibility that he could be elected by a pollster who sat me down and said, look, the numbers just aren't there. It turned out there was a logical error that I was missing in that. But the what happened with me is I, I, I went from thinking that Donald Trump was this incredibly fascinating story because he was this avatar for um, kind of underclass rage that was, you know, we hadn't really seen a whole lot of that in American politics in a while. There was some of that on the, on the Bernie side, 
But to be honest, and I, and I say this to somebody who I liked Bernie a lot. I, I covered him. I spent a lot of time with him. But his crowds were a little bit more upper class. They were more college educated. Uh, the people who were in Trump's crowds, they were, you know, they were rural, mostly poor people. Um, maybe poor is not quite the right word, but they were, you know, as one politician put it to me, a candidate for Congress, he said they literally came down from the hills to vote for Trump. And you you would see that he would fill these gigantic stadiums and there would be lines miles long. Um, and that, I thought that was a fascinating story. And then all of a sudden in the middle of 2020, it was like there was this dictum from above in, in the business that the only thing we could say about Trump was that this was a white supremacist movement and that um, it had to be denounced every time you talked about it. And I didn't think it was a positive thing necessarily. I just thought that's not really our job. Our job is to explain why this is happening. Um, and they went away from that. And then as soon as he got elected, they, they plunged into this intelligence story. And I, I, I didn't really have any sources in that world. I had never covered that. So it took a while for, for me to get up to speed on the fact that that, was, that story was completely fake. Um, and, and just remind listeners what the story was, because it, it is actually incredible to look back on what we were expected, not only to believe, but actually you were kind of suspect if you doubted it at the time, right? This what right. was the claim? Yeah. The, the claim was that Donald Trump conspired with Vladimir Putin to uh, basically the, the, the plot was that Trump was feeding the Russians intelligence about um what was going on on the ground in the campaign so that the Russians could more effectively deploy things like Facebook ads and that there was another route of communication going back the other way where the Russians allegedly were going to try to funnel uh, opposition research about Hillary Clinton. Um, and this all came out through this ridiculous, bogus uh, research document called the Steele dossier that was cooked up by one of yours, uh, Christopher yeah. Steele. Um, About you know, great exports. Yeah, and it's similar. There, there was a similar episode with the WMD thing. Uh, in, you know, in, in two thousand two, two thousand three, where there were like there was a some kind of a paper that was plagiarized from a University of California student. I forget how it ha how it happened. But it was similar to that. It was similar to like the Chalabi documents. It, it was a, it was a phony story that was kind of passed around all the reporters, and they instead of uh, directly reporting on it, they reported on the progress of the documents. So they would say the Steele dossier has been passed from this senator to this committee, whatever, and that way that they got around having to say whether it was correct or not, or verified or not. But it was a totally ridiculous story. There was nothing to it, no, except for unnamed intelligence sources who stood behind it. But you know, you should always be a little nervous when the, you can't recreate the story in a lab, and that's what happened with this thing. And, and it was a, it was front page news. If you didn't live here, James, I mean, it, it was it was dominated American life in, in the way no story mm -hmm. has. Um, in my lifetime for three full years. It was an unbelievable thing. And and for somebody like me who started off just saying kind of politely, like, hey, we've been burned before. Maybe we shouldn't, you know, dive into this thing. People were like pointing fingers and saying, are, are you know, are you, a, are you a Putin sympathizer or a Putin lover? That kind of, I, I mean, I had never experienced anything like that before. It was bizarre. 
but um, but it, I, I'm, it turns out that that was part of the playbook. I mean, they did it with Corbin too. I mean, uh, not quite to that extent, but uh, it, it was a remarkable thing. It's a structurally similar um, uh, project, even down to the detail of this investigation, this report, which takes ages. It's always been deferred when it's actually finally going to come out. In the meantime, you're allowed to speculate that anything could be in it, anything you can say about uh, Trump and Putin. Maybe it's going to be in there. That solidifies as uh, uh, as fact in people's minds. Very similar deal with Corbyn and the Equality and Human Rights Commission report into anti-Semitism. Basically, by the time it actually appears, even if it is a nothing burger, uh, People say, yeah, but what I imagined was going to be in it, that was awful. That was really bad right. stuff. I can't believe Corbyn uh, uh, would do all that. So, um, I mean, how do you thread the needle, though? Because this this is actually in all kinds of ways, in media terms, in constitutional terms. It's an unprecedented situation where you have, on the one hand, um, uh, an expectation, as you described, that liberal journalists, responsible broadcasters are supposed to offer a kind of moral coding to mm. a well you might not like him but a legitimate elected president a legitimate elected party leader in corbyn's case um where yeah you you, you can't just sort of talk about him as 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 a, a politician that uh, is kind of polarizing but there it is you, you are expected to take a side meanwhile what is piling up is this extraordinary um a, a project of of a basically a conspiracy against that president but then on the other hand you've got supporters of trump who will basically believe anything in his defense so it, it's a it, it's a, a situation where there is this kind of massive polarization something that you had already diagnosed in your in your work on uh, on cable news and, and and corporate media um but uh, yeah, I mean, how do you thread that? What what, uh, what did you hope the outcome of proving that the Russiagate story was was this uh, kind of conspired nonsense? Uh, were you hoping there'd be an outcome or were you just trying to keep your head down and be a normal journalist, a kind of pre-2016 journalist? Yeah, I mean, I, uh, I guess I was just sort of hoping that people in the business would would come to their senses and, you know, walk it back the same way they kind of did with the WMD story. I mean, even though in America, it, it was pretty conspicuous that the people who got the D, the WMD story the most wrong uh, tended to be promoted the most. Um, mm -hmm. So, you know, you have people like the current editor of Atlantic, the Atlantic magazine, right? Like the, the New Yorker, um, some of the bigger columnists at New York Magazine. The, these, these were all people who fell for that story like the hardest um, or promoted it in very aggressive ways. They, it, it, there's this legend that it's like one Judith Miller who got it wrong, and that's not the case at all. It was like in, entire institutions got it wrong. Sometimes they did things like delayed, you know, in the case of the New York Times, they delayed stories that would have, um, you know, throwing cold water on that whole thing so that the invasion could could take place. Yeah. Uh, MSNBC sort of selectively um, unhired Jesse Ventura and Phil Donahue because the, they were questioning that story. Um, so even though that happened, there was still a moment of kind of 
where Americans realized, okay, there are no WMDs there, and that that generated the momentum to elect Barack Obama, who just by being vague about the subject became all, uh, the, re the recipient of a lot of anti-war energy. Um, and there was a little bit of a recognition that, okay, that story was wrong. It was fake. It was manipulative. And they blamed it on Bush and Cheney. And it was kind of stowed away in the past. Well, we never had that with Russiagate. Like the, the, there was never a moment to this day, you know, down the line, all of those institutions will, will say it was absolutely a righteous investigation. Everything about it was correct. You know, it still might even be true. Um, that kind of a thing. And for me though, it was, it was very disillusioning. Like I, I, I you know, grew up in a family full of journalists and I, I come from the school of reporting where I, I don't really particularly care uh, all that. I don't have a, a deep emotional connection to who, who wins elections and who loses. For me, the job is much more about whether you get it right or wrong. And like, you know, before you publish, you really, really worry. Are there things that are incorrect in there? Most of the older school reporters that I know are like that. Um, but a lot of us kind of got shoved off to the side when this story happened. And you'll, you'll notice that there are some pretty conspicuous names who are no longer publishable in the United States. Um, and, you know, a lot of it had to do with this story. And so... When when I started working on the Twitter files, you you see that the the, the Russia story was intimately connected with this um, sort of larger effort to kind of take control of the news landscape. I mean, I think the you know the, this whole idea of CT to CP uh, and counterterrorism and counterpopulism. If you look at the kind of history of the internet, it's this. Uh, amazing democratizing phenomenon until about 2010, 2011, 2012, when a series of events start to happen. There's Occupy, the Tea Party, the Arab Spring, then it's Brexit and Trump. And I think that was when the light bulb went off uh, for the national security state. And they realized that this thing, the internet has to get under control because we no longer have the system under control. Trump would not have happened in a previous epoch of, you know, American politics because once all the reporters, you know, drowned him out, he wouldn't have had the opportunity to speak directly to the population. But Twitter made it possible for him to do that. And Donald Trump's Twitter account was the biggest news service in America in 2016. And, you know, it's not a coincidence that he's no longer on Twitter, right? Like, I think the, this whole thing is about getting the internet uh, and turning it from an institu uh, institution that was democratizing or even creating a kind of anarchy to being a tool of social control. And that's what that period, I think, that we were looking at now between 2016, 2020, that's what they're building. They're building this mechanism to accomplish that. Uh, and it's very complicated and, you know, there's still a lot of things we don't know about, but I, I think that's the story that's going to come out. 
I referred to um, the situation that you, you've got in the States right now as a, as a constitutional crisis, because right now, if you if you listen to the, the mainstream media, you would think that the, the worst people in the country are the Trump supporters who deny the 2020 election was legitimate. They believe in conspiracy theories that say that it was stolen for Joe Biden. They support uh, the January 6th um, incursion into uh, into um, government buildings in Washington, uh, and they believe in fake news. It, it's like liberals never ever learn anything. They're basically doing the same thing as 2016, talking about these people as uh, as deplorables. Hillary Clinton now pipes up to say that they need re-education. They're still going to win next year, in all probability. Trump is still going to win next year, and these people are still going to be um, sort of flustered. How did this happen? We've spent all this time denouncing them and denigrating them, and uh, they've they've still won. But the fact is that um, what we learn from your researches and others is that even if these Trump supporters don't have all the exact facts right, they've certainly got a point. If we complain that they don't believe in the 2020 election, well, Hillary Clinton supporters didn't believe in the 2016 election. That's what Russiagate was all about. It was its own kind of January 6th style uh, conspiracy theory. Only that time around, it was the blue team that was doing it. Uh, right. When they say that, you know, the Biden campaign conspired with the media, etc. Well, the Twitter files prove directly that that is exactly what happened. It, okay, maybe what Steve Bannon says on his show, maybe what the average uh, uh, Trump supporter at a rally says uh, uh, happened is, isn't sort of to the letter what happened. But as it were, um, in principle, <laughs> it is what happened. Uh, neither side can recognize each other's legitimacy. And the, the Democrats do not have a leg to stand on when it comes to morality or legitimacy, because they did a version of absolutely everything they've been accused of and absolutely everything they accused Trump of. Oh, yeah. And it's one dirty trick after another. And, and so you're, you're weighing, okay, you do have this one population over here that they do, they believe in some pretty nutty things. I mean, can Q, there's some of the stuff on the QAnon pages. I mean, it's, it's, it's a little, it's a little out there, right? And then some of those sites are, are disturbing. And if you if you go to those rallies, you will talk to people who will say things that will, you know, send a chill up your spine occasionally, right? Like that does happen. Uh, but you know, when I look at it and I see that there's an organized effort, for instance, one of the stories that I thought was amazing in the Twitter files was. There was a moment when a, a Republican congressman named Devin Nunes um, issued a report about about how the FISA process, thats this is the secret court that allows you to do a certain kind of surveillance without a warrant in America, that the FISA court had been lied to uh, by the FBI, um, which had used that phony steel research uh, to basically create fake probable cause so that they could spy on people in the Trump campaign. Now, when when Nunes put out that report, there was this website called Hamilton 68 um, that purported to track Russian bots that claimed that the Russian bots were he massively promoting hashtags like hashtag release the memo and, you know, all these things that were supposedly in favor of Congressman Nunes. So it was like this cyber McCarthyism where, you know, it was a campaign accusing this person of being the recipient 
of Russian intelligence trickery. Um, and then we see in the Twitter files where the, the people in Twitter, they're saying to each other, we know better than anybody else that this stuff, like the, the head of the trust and safety uh, division of Twitter, can I swear in the show? You certainly can. You yeah, say whatever you fucking like. Yeah, so there's, there, I mean, their emails is like, we have to call this out for the bullshit it is, right? Like, the, the, there's nothing to it. It's a complete and total lie. Not only is it a lie, but there, there are emails to, to senators like, the, you know, Richard Blumenthal and Diane Feinstein, where, where Twitter is telling them, this is a lie. If you go out in public and say this, that this guy, the, the, the recipient of Russian largesse, you are lying, right? And they just blow it off and do it anyway. Mm. That to me, like, I don't know. I mean, I, I get being um, up in arms about some of the things that Trump says, but this is like an organized intelligence dirty trick that you're playing on the entire population. And yeah, they have a right to be mad about that. And they also have a right to be mad about other stuff. I mean, you have, you know, there was a story in the Guardian US uh, a little while ago where there was a poll about American attitudes about the economy and how do people feel about the economy? Do you feel positively? You think it's going in the right direction, the wrong direction? Well, most people feel like it's not going in the right direction. And then you have the Guardian and people like Paul Krugman, who won the Nobel Prize, saying those people are wrong. Like, this is a story about people's feelings. How do you feel about the economy? And he's saying that they're, they're, uttering falsehoods and repeating misinformation like their like their own self-assessment is misinformation imagine how insulting that is to see you know uh, this cosseted you know pampered new york times columnist with his, with his nobel prize telling you that you don't actually have it so bad yeah, uh, it's uh, didn't you didn't you get the cake? We said let the week go. You must have not get the cake. <laughs> We've seen that story before. We know how this ends, right? The, the that's exactly what it is. It's let the meat cake, and and they keep going there, and they think there's going to be a different ending. And I, I, I mean, I've reached the point where I'm I'm mad on their behalf. You know what I mean? <laughs> like like, um, it, it, they're not writing about me, but. It's it's infuriating the stuff that they keep throwing out there, and and yeah, it's going to end up in uh, with the same result. So I want to get to the Twitter files and and where that story is right now, because obviously that that is still live. But uh, I need to to stay chronological. I need to bring in the very latest stuff that you've been uh, bringing out, the UK files, because at the very time that this campaign against Trump was being constructed, a very similar campaign was being constructed against Jeremy Corbyn. Uh, in the shape of this group called Labour Together. Now, we spoke a couple of episodes ago with Joe Guinan, who at the time was an advisor to John McDonnell, um, Corbyn's right-hand man. And uh, he, he was giving his sort of inside take on, on some of these people. Um, okay. Tell us what you, what you discovered about Labour Together, because after all, that sounds very good, doesn't it? The party was very divided. So, you know, bringing the Labour Party together, who could complain about that Matt right yeah it, it sounds so wonderful right what, what could be the problem with that this is this ultimately this is about the the um, provenance or the origins of this group called the Center for countering digital hate which has become basically the most influential NGO in the anti-disinformation space in the world um, it's based in the UK it's headed by this guy Imran Ahmed 
I'm sure he's a familiar figure to you. Uh, and there, there are documents, there are internal labor emails. Um, that Al Jazeera got hold of them a couple of years ago. They did a, did a few uh, things with it, but they never really followed through on all of it. Um, we only published a piece of it so far. There's more coming out. But ultimately, what these documents are going to show, uh, so far what we've been able to show is that the Center for Countering Digital Hate had its origins um, in things that were done when Ahmed was still working for uh, the Labor Party. Um, he was a staffer. Oh God, I'm blanking on the name of the person he was. He was a staffer for at the time, but uh, might have been Angela Eagle. Like, I can't. Uh, That's right. Yeah, it, Angela Eagle was the Brickgate MP, and and he's all over those emails around that. Right. Right. Yeah. So the, there, there are a couple of episodes there. It starts with the the Grant Shapps uh, thing where he was allegedly changing his own Wikipedia page, and they were. It turns out they were behind that. They were they were the source for that story. So we have the emails on that. And then there's the whole Brickgate thing where we also see evidence of uh, Labor Together and Ahmed and some other folks sort of talking back and forth about how to war game that story, how to coordinate the response after it comes out. And we're going to see that this ends up transforming into a group called uh, SFFN, uh stop funding fake news i think is what what that stands mm -hmm. for and then sffn turns into the center for countering digital hate which is uh, a character that we saw all over the place in the twitter files asking for all kinds of people to be taken down um, but the the key point here is that they had always claimed to be independent um that they you know didn't have a political connection and this shows pretty clearly that the roots of it are with this you know, political action group labor together, which it sounds like is going to become, you know, the driving force behind your next prime minister. Uh, and yeah, so the, that, that's very interesting, right? And, and Brickgate is, is just the first of a series of epi episodes uh, where, you know, they're kind of putting a thumb on the scale about the Corbin story and trying to convince journalists that, you know, there's this massive anti-Semitic conspiracy going on, um, often involving Jewish members of the party, oddly, oddly enough. But that's, that's not a story I understand as well as the American stuff. But, you know, I'm relying on some other people over there to, to guide us through it. But, you know, it's, it's a similar thing. What's really striking uh, to me is that uh, the Center for Countering Digital Hate, yeah, again, hate, we're all against that, aren't we? Um, it, it, it represents itself as opposing far-right extremism. One of its first targets was uh, Katie Hopkins, a, a right-wing um, columnist here in the UK. Um, but and, and its other kind of big project was countering COVID misinformation, something that we're going to get onto in a moment. But when you look at who the personnel are and you look at the kinds of connections that uh, you're, you're revealing with these leaks, you realize that these are people who their whole reason for getting up in the morning was to defeat the left and to defeat right. Jeremy Corbyn. So they their headline issues were things that the average Corbyn supporter would actually get behind and would also kind of believe in. Meanwhile, the whole kind of apparatus is there to undermine their 
leader, we, it, you, you could sort of, you know, draw a kind of graph here where um, allegations of anti-Semitism, the main and most successful um, form of um, uh, allegation deployed against Corbyn, allegations of Russia uh, uh, collaboration and white supremacy uh, uh, against Trump get fed into um, the, uh, or, or provide the kind of initial uh, personnel and organizations for what becomes a massive escalation of this kind of stuff under COVID. The, 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 the campaign against Trump in, in the States, the campaign against Cor Corbyn, and to some extent Brexit in the UK, then becomes the campaign against COVID misinformation, disinformation, often simultaneously, uh, in fact. But um, what, what we've what we got to realize is that it's rare that the same individual person will want to defend Trump, Corbyn, and free speech on COVID. There aren't right. any people who have that collection of interests. Most of them subscribe to this show or, or, or uh, watch Racket <laughs> News. Um, all, all eight of us, right? Is it like yeah, exactly. But come on. It's all one thing, down to the, the actual people. It's, right. it, these, these organizations are all interconnected in this way. T take us into COVID. How, how, did that, how did that sort of represent a kind of big takeoff? Because, uh, as you say, a year ago, uh, you, you got handed these Twitter files. I mean, th this is part of the story that we need as well, that it, when Elon Musk took over Twitter, something that, that, again, was sort of rumored for a long time, and then it happened, he ended up giving this evidence of just how much uh, the US state and security apparatus have been interfering with supposedly free media companies during the COVID period. Maybe you could tell us the story uh, insofar as you, you're, you're happy to, of how Elon Musk connected with you, why you think he wanted to, you know, presumably he'd found all this stuff like just sat there on a hard drive or something when he came into the Twitter office on day one, why he was giving it to you uh, and how that sort of came about? Well, I, I, mean, I, I mean, basically, I just got a note from Twitter to come into San Francisco. Um, I was the first one. There were a group of us. Uh, Barry Weiss was another, um, you know, the former New York Times columnist. Barry brought a, a number of other reporters who ended up uh, kind of sticking through. One of them was Michael Schellenberger. Michael and I ended up doing most of the work. Um, there, there was another reporter, Lee Fong, who uh, was a, he's an excellent young investigative reporter who, who came up through The Intercept uh, has a, with a kind of a lefty reputation. So there was an interesting kind of eclectic group. Barry and I had been kind of ideologically on the opposite side of almost every topic. Yeah. But, um, you know, Elon, he... he was under a lot of a, a, a pressure from conventional media. They were doing this kind of Hitler of the month club uh, propaganda attack against him. Suddenly he was the worst person on earth. Like five minutes ago in America, Elon Musk was this, you the know. Electric cars guy, the green right? guy. Yeah, exactly. Like, we, you know, we loved him. He was an innovator. And then all of a sudden, he, as soon as he starts being rumored to buy Twitter, he becomes the worst person on earth and a bigot and, and a national security risk. And, you know, the New York Times was publishing front page stories about how this was a, posed a serious national security threat to the United States. And they were quoting like high level people in the Pentagon and the FBI and that sort of thing. 
So he was, I'm sure, upset. There were there were widespread advertiser boycotts like before he even set foot in the building um, as a result of this. And, you know, I had actually publicly suggested that there was a rumor going around that he was thinking about doing this um, in the fall. And uh, so, I, you know, I, I mentioned that, hey, if he, do, if he does this, if he opens up the vault of uh, Twitter that, you know, he'll be an American folk hero because we all had questions about what's going on in social media. Something's not right about it, right? Like they were, they were denying simple things like shadow banning. You go back and look, you'll see um, Twitter had a, uh, a blog post uh, setting the record straight on shadow banning. And the first sentence is like, you know, do we shadow ban? We do not, you know? Um, it's lying, just obvious lying. Yeah, right. Yes, yes, yes. I mean, the first minute we got in there, we we found evidence of that. Um, but so Elon, he very specifically picked people who were not part of the conventional media apparatus to give a huge and unprecedented story. I mean, this has never happened where a, a massive American corporation just opens up its guts um, in you know before it's been. Put into bankruptcy or something like that. That's just, it has never taken place like that. And because it's a communications company, the, it's doubly interesting because its tentacles reach everywhere. I mean, you could write an entire alternate history of the United States um, or the world with Twitter's files. So he brought us in there. And to be honest, I couldn't exactly tell what he wanted to accomplish from this, except that he was really pissed off at something. And he thought that this would really, you know, irk some folks and i got a sense that it was probably the right people that he was trying to hurt so um that was that was the unifying thing for a lot of the reporters we still didn't know what was in the files though i don't think he did either i i don't, I don't think they even looked a whole lot at what was in those uh, documents um he wanted to, he was very interested in the COVID topic from the beginning we didn't get there until later the first thing that we we focused on was the FBI, Homeland Security um, uh, communications, because that was a huge shock to us. We didn't think that that was there, and we, we felt like it was important to establish that. Um, once we did, though, uh, and this this was a surprise to me because I, I had I was like everybody else. I, I I thought the vaccine was there was no issue with it. I I, I listened to all the guidance from the CDC, and um, I didn't have any unusual views about it. I didn't, you know. But when you get into it, you find uh, that they were suppressing all sorts of things that were just completely legitimate scientific opinion. Had nothing to do even with, you know, being anti-vaccine sentiment. The, the first figure that we found evidence was oppression involving was a Stanford doctor named Jay Bhattacharya. Uh, and his crime was doing a study that showed that the WHO had, had overestimated the infection fatality rate by a factor of 17. He, his research was correct. Yeah, uh, and they suppressed them. We um, we had Jay uh, on on this show back at uh, Christmas, uh, and we've also had Janine Yunus uh, on a couple of times. She, she you recall she's uh, the the uh, she at least was one of the lawyers working um, on this case on on Jay's behalf and and on uh, Schellenberger's behalf as well. Um, and yeah, I mean the way they represented it was that this this was a case where not just legitimate speech but highly credentialed speech. Recent, 
you know, research, state-funded research, university research, had been um, had, had been suppressed at, at the behest of a political campaign, and then on on, on the, at the behest of a of a presidency uh, and at the behest of the FBI. Yeah, I mean the the. the, the... Here, here's the, the danger with censorship programs that I've, I mean, I'm sure you, you don't need this explained to you, but I think what, what people don't get yeah. is that they start off, they always start off with something that's obvious, like, oh, people are saying that, you know, the vaccine, if you, if you get it, they're going to implant microchips in your arms and that's disinformation. It's going to, it's going to discourage people from getting the vaccine. We have to stop that kind of dangerous um, disinformation, misinformation. But then you get under the hood and you find that they're doing things like defining disinformation or malinformation, which is this other category where it's true, but it produces an undesirable result right? like promoting hesitancy. So that could be something like Jay Bhattacharya's work. You know, Jay Bhattacharya's research shows that if you're under a certain age, um, it, the vaccine might not be indicated for you. Um, or you know or that lockdowns may not be a good idea now that then they start to get into this area of defining that as a kind of disinformation because it suppresses enthusiasm for the government policy now now you've gone all the way from correcting false speech to to suppressing criticism of the government which is exactly what the first amendment was designed to prevent in america and it, you know, I think the 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 Bhattacharya case, the and the other defendants, Martin Kaldorf from Harvard, who's a really great guy, he's from Sweden, brilliant. Um, Aaron Cariati, who's a, uh, a doctor from the University of California system, they're all brilliant, great citizens, highly credentialed. These are the kinds of people who you would want leading your society, and they were the most suppressed people in America, and that. That was a great shock to find that out. Um, and it, it was the impetus for this Missouri v. Biden lawsuit that you mentioned, the, this legal case, which I, I think a lot of Americans don't realize has the potential to be, you know, something that's really groundbreaking. Although we'll see, you know, there's some rumors that maybe it won't end up so well either. But um, it was important that, that those figures emerged because the, uh, until then there was this image that, this kind of stuff was only targeting, you know, the worst kind of speech, and there was no public backing for reform of it. But with those people, yeah. what what we found is that um, when lockdowns and vaccine mandates were still a, a live issue and a live possibility, and, and something that was going to, you know, e you know, either continue or be reimposed, uh, it was quite difficult to get people on side uh, in any kind of mass resistance because it was seen as a sort of crank thing and then it seemed almost like in in the space of 24 hours you couldn't find anyone who who uh, would deny that there had been a kind of uh, overreach you couldn't find anyone who would simply defend those things but now it you know people just want to forget it it's so traumatic we don't want to talk about that anymore things have moved on there's other stories so it is it's, it's been quite a strange and hard issue to really galvanize people over even though it has been it was quite literally a universal issue in that most of the world was um, subjected to some variation on these measures um, it's um, 
well, but so you know, short of a, of a kind of like mass movement or or a, a kind of mass uh, cause for a truth and reconciliation commission for COVID, um, we, we've seen other forms of resistance in play, either highly local ones specific to particular sectors, like the truckers' convoy in Canada. Uh, Janine um, uh, uh, Eunice has described to us the kind of this almost like lawfare civil liberties approach to um, getting some justice or some kind of assurances that we can find a way to stop this happening again kind of through the courts. Um, and you've also been involved in um, setting up a kind of, I don't know, a sort of intellectuals charter or a sort of media voices charter in the, the Westminster Declaration, which your colleague Eve Kay uh, was kind enough to invite me to sign, which I was extremely happy to do. Um, I, I don't know if, you, if you've got something to say about like the, the, the forms of, of resistance you've seen take place or, or even simply what you were hoping to achieve with the Westminster Declaration against this kind of stuff. I mean, I, th I think, you know, uh, that's something I'm not, I'm not as practiced at. Uh, um, I've never really been terribly involved in politics. Uh, I much more, you know, try to accomplish things through the journalism. But I think, you know, Michael has some experience in that area. Uh, we saw with things like the Harper's letter, um, which probably, uh, you know, it wasn't as, as big a deal over in England as it was here, but um, it, it, it does tend to put issues on the map a little bit and, and create talking points at least. Um, right now, I mean, there's a big problem in the United States in that there's no, there isn't a strong institutional backing for civil liberties in the same way, on the left, in the same way yeah. that there used to be. So we, we do have the, so the Cato Institute, so that's more grounded in like economic libertarianism, but they, they, they do advocate for civil liberties. There's a new group called FIRE um, that tries to take the place of what the ACL used to do. They, they litigate some of those same kinds of cases, but the old ACLU, that whole crowd is gone. They, they, there's no longer anybody in the Democratic caucus who even talks in that language anymore. So, so th these are the guys who used to say that, you know, in the interests of free speech, we have to defend even the rights of neo-Nazis and Holocaust deniers to say their piece because this is America where we have free speech. Today, you'll find the same people saying, well, actually, some kind of speech, you know, is actually harm. So we have to ban this language. I, they, they came out on the side of vaccine mandates, which is just, that was a great example of just how the, the professional class just fell on its sword, basically, over COVID. And whatever your little job was, whatever your little area of expertise was, you just threw it out the window and said, no, actually, that thing I've dedicated my life to is a load of rubbish. COVID's the only thing that matters. I mean, a, a great example, to Toby Green, um, who, who you'd get on with, he's a, he's a, he's a sort of left lockdown a skeptical writer and an expert on Africa um, here in Britain. He, 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 would, he would talk about how, you know, academics whose whole career was dedicated to um, uh, uh, studying and trying to end child marriage in Africa. And then, of course, as soon as lockdown comes along, people lose all their income and child marriage just comes back 
with a vengeance. And, and all those experts just wouldn't say anything. Uh, and it was it's very similar with the American sort of historically liberal civil liberties people. You know, it, you're not saying, you know, vaccine denial or whatever. You were saying, it's my job to make the case that you shouldn't have to take a vaccine if you don't want to. It, it, like the, any idea of like there being discrete professional duties on the part of these people just just vanished overnight. It was it was the real sort of um, the, the euthanasia of the bourgeoisie, at least its intellectual oh, wing. Yeah, yeah, and you know part part of that is it, it's kind of a long gradual story about what's happened on the left in America. I mean, the Democratic Party used to be very closely connected to working class people, to unions. You think about somebody like Bernie Sanders. I remember talking to Bernie, you know, why, why do you have so much affection for the Democratic Party? He grew up in this poor neighborhood in Brooklyn where everybody was a Democrat because of things like Social Security, the New Deal, right? Like, you know, there were, there were people who were going to starve to death and then they had, um, you know, they got a little bit of help and that saw them through and they were grateful for generations after that. Well, in the Clinton years, they started decoupling that tradition, right? The, the, the idea was we're not competing with Ronald Reagan um, well enough. We need to get more money to run our campaign. So we're going to adopt this sort of pro-growth strategy. You had the same thing in, England, in Britain with the Blairites, right? The third way um, movement. But you started to see this change. And now the Democratic Party is primarily an upper class phenomenon. The most of the richest congressional districts in America are they're democratic. And they are very willing to abandon um, you know, sort of rights issues uh that primarily affect working class people. So with with COVID, you know, the lockdowns were an incredibly serious thing if your job was going out and being a waitress and or you know, uh, had something to do with going outside for a living. If you, you know, worked in a laptop and it was better for you to stay home in your pajamas all day long. Um, and, but they were very, very willing to just sort of forego everybody else's concerns. And with it, you know, this, the speech concerns, they turned in this, in this incredibly like venomous way against people who had concerns about mandates um, or, or lockdowns or about school closings or school openings. Um, you know, you, you saw it in particularly like in popular entertainment, these denunciations of, uh, you know, people who had alternate opinions. There was this one thing, anti-vax Barbie, this, that they did on the Jimmy Fallon show that was just about how stupid these people were, right? It was this yeah. incredible, mean caricature, right? And we just never saw that before. So that, that that's that's a new thing, like in, in my experience. And it is an important ingredient, as you say, that, the okay, you blame the left, but there is no leadership on this. And part of the tragedy is that the, the, pe the people who have been able to spearhead this kind of new rise of, at times, anti-establishment left-wing energies have tended to be these older boomer figures, partly because they remember what politics was like before Reagan, before Thatcher, before neoliberalism. So Bernie and Corbyn are at the head of it. But because equally, for generational reasons, they have this affection for what are now reactionary liberal 
parties. It's right. true of Bernie, and it's even true of Corbyn, who, uh, after all, had a cat named after the 1960s Labour Prime Minister, Harold Wilson. This oh. guy is not going to be the one who's going to burn down the Labour Party like we want uh, him to. So, it, it, you know, Bernie's completely in-house with the Biden administration, even though Corbyn is, is basically Oedipus a colonist. He's just been completely discredited, humiliated, lied about, insulted by Keir Starmer. He still can't, you know, he can't quite bring himself to condemn the party <laughs> and, and the right in the way he should, you know. It's like Kamenev and, and, and Bukharin. I mean, it's, a, you know, they're, 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 they're being dragged off to the gulags and, and they're, they're still like, you know, wrapping their... The lesser <laughs> evil, the lesser <laughs> evil. <laughs> I mean, there, it's like there's something in in the DNA of that kind of figure that, that um, feels like they still have to do the right thing, even as they're being, you know, in, in the case of Bernie, what they did to Bernie was so treacherous and disgusting, really, yeah. that, you know, uh, I lost a lot of respect for Bernie just on the level of, um, you know, as, as a person, he, he just took things he shouldn't have taken um they pulled dirty tricks on him they leaked stories to the new york times before the day before the nevada primary that vladimir putin wanted him elected you know over joe biden and, and bernie knew that it was you know uh, something that was coming out of langley that the and that the whole party was doing this to him and he didn't stand up and call it out he 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 kind of he he pretended that it was all about you know sort of russia's fault or something like that um, to this day, he doesn't do it, you know, um, and it's hard to, you know, people at the end of the day, they want, they, they want to follow somebody who, sh who shows personal qualities of, uh, you know, fortitude and, and backbone. And he, and he didn't show that. And that was disappointing, I think. Whereas Trump, you know, for all of his other negative qualities, like Trump is going to go, he, he'll end up in the yard of some federal penitentiary and he'll still be, you know, uh, singing the same song in the end and yeah. you know it, it which is better you know I think one works better politically but it, I just wish Bernie had a little bit of that sort of Mick Jagger streak in him that he he just he, he didn't have that and, and the, that was, this this impossibility of kind of seeing the blind spots on on either side I, I think is absolutely crucial to the whole story uh, of counter populism that uh, you've been outlining uh, outlining for us. Um, so j let me see if I can recap. The first thing to do was to get the sort of centrist, socially liberal, economically um, uh, hawkish um, uh, uh, liberals on 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 board, and you did that by telling them that the people who had humiliated them on the right, Trump, Brexit. And on the left, Corbyn and Bernie were equally illegitimate, equally hate-filled bigots, equally needed new forms of surveillance to come in, and a certain abandonment of journalistic norms and standards. No, really, we have to get rid of these guys. So we'll forget everything that we previously believed about professional standards and truth and so on. Then you bring in COVID, and that kind of that sort of does the same for a much bigger swathe of people. People are absolutely terrified of this ter terrible illness uh, that, uh, as far as anyone thought in 2020, was going to kill the, the entire species. Um, and so there's this extra 
kind of frontier of justification for okay we'll put up with a bit more censorship we'll put up with being told what to do by the state a bit more uh we'll allow a few more previously legitimate voices to be kind of kicked out of uh the normal scope of public opinion um i think that we're at a point right now with um the israel gaza crisis disaster uh, whatever you want to call it where we're kind of picking off the last like um bit of resistance because what we found on this show is that when we want to talk about corbyn being mistreated or bernie being mistreated it's not hard to get left-wing guests and we have a good talk about it whenever we want to talk about covid even a lot of the time when we want to talk about um arguing against uh, a free-for-all of weapons manufacturers just taking money and pouring weapons into ukraine when we want to be critical about covid or ukraine uh we have to get right-wing guests on uh, but now with israel a lot of the people who are very resistant to the deep state and to propaganda uh, and understood that there was a new thing at stake in how far state agencies and the media were are in collaboration now a lot of those previously recently dissenting people have kind of reverted to the establishment line a lot of those people who were so hot on criticizing uh, the us state over covid and, and ukraine now are like yeah but you have to defend israel yeah but the palestinians are basically animals yeah but haven't you heard about 40 beheaded babies babies hanging on a clothesline all of these uh, uh stories that the israeli media now reports were fake <laughs> and in fact didn't happen on october 7th um i i, I sort of felt this and, and i said it before on the show about the the westminster declaration that in a way there was some unfortunate timing there because you put out a, a brilliant statement on the side of um free speech and, and against um propaganda uh, and against um uh, uh, security agencies interfering in our ability to produce media and communicate um and you got together a list of names many of which very right wing people a lot of very left wing people a lot of uh, uh kind of people who sort of bridge that that gap and then all of a sudden a new cycle arrived that made all the right wing people say pretty much say can i just surprise you despite what i just said about yeah. propaganda uh and protest i don't actually believe that anymore yeah it's really it, you're right it's disappointing and it's a it's a fracture in you know the coalition that was kind of being built a little bit um yeah again it's so disappointing to me because uh, i mean i was actually friends with people like dennis kucinich there, until pretty recently, the, that whole tradition in America was just so was so vibrant, like this civil libertarian thing. Throughout the, all the Bush years, there was resistance to everything from the Patriot Act to throwing habeas corpus out. To um, and then all of a sudden, Obama came along, and it was like you know people decided to to put away their concerns. And you're right. Now, uh, leading into this year, uh, after the Twitter files, almost anybody who was willing to speak out about the COVID stuff or about the manipulation of social media, they were almost all on the right. We couldn't find, I, I, I don't know, a single person in the Democratic caucus who was who's willing, maybe Rohana is like one person in America who might talk about it. 
Um, but but now, you know, the Republicans are split on this because they, as often happens with the Republican Party, when something, you know, the, their own personal hobby horse issue comes up, they take an even more caricatured version of what they were just opposing and do the same thing. Yeah. Um, and, you know, suddenly they're not just in favor of, uh, you know, sterilizing the internet a little bit. They want to ban like physical protests. They want to, you know, make make it so that colleges mandate that certain kinds of groups can't exist. I mean, so they go there immediately, and then you know, now you have a real problem because who, who's the, who's left to talk about this stuff? And for American, for for someone who's an American, it's particularly depressing because this used to be something that was sort of unique to us that even if we disagreed politically on this issue, pretty much everybody felt the same way, um, you know, for a long time. I mean, up, up to a point anyway. And now that's just gone. You know, it's just not there anymore. And they've been very successful in, in splitting it up. And, and this particular crisis, you're right, has it's just it's just a direct hit to the worst possible spot for this issue, uh, unfortunately. And it, I mean, it's it, it seems to me that this has got to be looked back on as another extraordinary, huge chapter in the same development of, of the counter-populism apparatus that you've been describing. I mean, everything that happened in Ukraine over a year and a half has, has happened over a month in Israel, as far as the media ecosystem is concerned. Uh, I'm not talking about dead bodies. We've got a lot more of those in Gaza uh, uh, than in Ukraine. Um, the um, I, I mean, what do, what do you make of these IDF screenings, for example? This is a very novel form of propaganda where Israel says, well, it, it would be distasteful and against the, the wishes of the families and so on for us to release this footage. Instead, we're going to do cinema screenings of all the worst things that Hamas did for select influencers and journalists. I don't know if you were invited to one of these things. No, I wasn't, but uh, yeah. And, and then we're going to send these guys out to tell the population uh us idiots out here, what we would have seen had we been allowed to go to the IDF screening. This is totally novel. Uh, I mean, what we saw a little bit of in, in uh, the Ukraine war early on was all of these paid, um, you know, anti-digital hate people, anti-disinformation people saying, oh, you know what, it's okay when Ukraine does it, when they make up stories about, you know, uh, uh, the ghost of Kiev uh, flying around in a plane shooting Russians, the Snake Island, oh, the Bra or, or these kind of like movie scripts that it sounded like these people were submitting them to Netflix already as they were supposedly happening. All of that was fake, but we were told, oh, actually, this kind of disinformation is fine. Very similar kind of dynamic where Israel is constantly putting out things, constantly putting out obviously fake, immediately debunked stuff, but because you've heard it once, I'm not talking about your average kind of person on the street, I'm talking about journalists here, your former colleagues who probably hate you now, yeah. you know, they just carry on reporting the, the, the debunked story without any consequences whatsoever. We live in a time of absolute elite impunity, where uh, from the president down to this rung of uh, elite journalists, everyone shrugs and says, well, what are you going to do about it? Uh, when, when you point out that they're just lying. Um, it, it seems to me that Israel is absolutely 
the new step in exactly this um, construction that's been going on. And alas, it's also the next step in eroding consent for free speech across the board, eroding consent for actually being able to criticize these processes because it's brought the right in, in just the way that the left was brought in and the centrists were brought in before. Yeah, it's funny. Um, you know, we just did a story on this thing called the CTI League, which is was another sort of precursor version of one of these COVID anti-disinformation groups. But among other things, they were employing um, a, a program that was originally called Aim It. It turned into something called Disarm. Uh, sometimes it's called Attack. Uh, it, the Department of Homeland Security bought it. It's it's a sort of taxonomic uh, program that identifies different types of disinformation campaigns and also suggests countermeasures and various types of offensive operations that you can use to, to counter disinformation. All of these things were developed in the Pentagon. Um, and among other things, you see Things like the IDF screenings, there, there are there are relatives of those suggestions in the AIMIT framework. Mm -hmm. Like, you know, you identify sort of trusted influencers, you selectively release the correct information, right? You suppress the other information, you flood the the uh, the zones where people are not, are not talking about either issue, but with distracting information so that they don't. Um, you know, they don't pay attention to the horrors that are going on. So this it's, is all it's, stuff that was developed by the Pentagon in the same way that they developed things like the, you know, the, the system for um, embedding, for instance, right? And, and journalists put up with that and they're putting up with this too. And, and But this is worse. It's a masterstroke, I was just going to say, to invite left-wing um, influencers and so on to these screenings as well like like uh, owen jones here in the uk who i've had a lot of problems with in the past but uh, I, I i got aside with him right now because owen could either say i'm not going to go uh in which case it's like oh you can't face the truth about what your friends in hamas wanted to do and did or he goes and comes out and says, oh, man, that was really fucked up in which case they say see see uh, this is what you're defending or he says it's kind of, yeah, it was fucked up. It's also kind of weird that only I could go with a bunch of right-wing journalists and, and, and we had to watch this and Reuters hasn't looked at the footage. No one's been able to access and and, uh, and verify the footage. In which case, ah, oh, you're an anti-Semite. Ah, oh, you're an apologist. Ah, oh, you're a Holocaust denier. I mean, this is, you know, this is fine to say now that you're a Holocaust denier if you just want elementary journalistic standards about, um, a, a, about a war that uh, we both, through our taxes, are funding one side of. Um, well, no, that's Holocaust denial, but I wanted to ask about it at all. Right, right. Well, and uh, again, I, I, would, I would compare it to the embedding thing, which I was stupid enough to go for. I mean, I talked to Chris Hedges about this later, and you know, we journalists had the option of saying no, right? Yeah, um, in which well, case, well, what's wrong with you? What's, uh, what's your problem? Why are you doing that? Right, and and you know what what they can they succeeded in doing is convincing us it's it's so unsafe for you to go to Iraq without us without our protection that you must agree to these conditions and once you agree to the conditions all sorts of things happen to your brain that I didn't realize I mean I was a little young when I went to Iraq and I didn't I didn't figure it out until later 
but you get emotionally attached to the troops, right? Um, you you start to look at the story a little bit differently. You forget to, to pay attention to certain things. And then you feel hesitant to point out other things when you get out because you're grateful that they protected you, right? It, it's the same kind of thing when you get, you know, the, the honor of an invitation to be one of the select few, right? It's this credentialing thing that goes on. It's, it's a, it's psychological in addition to everything else. I mean, journalists should always be fine with being outsiders um, mm -hmm. because that's our job. Our job is to not be on anybody's side. Um, and, but they, they've succeeded in, in convincing this next generation of reporters that we're part of this elite project and um and you know we have to represent the the values of norms and democracy and all these other things but they 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 mean that in a particular way right and it's it's very seductive to people they feel like they're in a special club um and what's actually happening is they're being either manipulated or or recruited to do wrong they don't see it until it's too late if they ever see it at all. Meanwhile, the, you know, the Seymour Hersh's of the world are just kicked out and you never hear from them again. And, um, you know, that, that's what they've done to journalism. They've turned, they've turned it into, uh, you know, a petting zoo, which is just p pathetic. So I've got to ask about Elon on that note, because obviously that, you know, some people will be listening and think, and thinking that there's a version of that dynamic in Elon Musk inviting this kind of select cadre of journalists and saying, you're the only people I trust to share these things with. Uh, I mean, I, I don't know how much you want to get into this. Obviously, it's an ongoing story, but people did observe that uh, you were kind of a, you've had your ups and downs with Elon Musk and almost immediately after he kind of brings you in to get this story out, it, it seems like... Uh, you two had a falling out. I, I, I don't know if um, you want to comment on what that relationship has been like since, but the, the more substantive question I had is, what do you make of Elon over there in Israel? I mean, uh, there, again, I'll, I'll sort of speak for our listeners a bit. I've heard, been hearing from a lot of them that it seems like Elon you know, a year ago was spilling the secrets of the Biden administration uh, out of a kind of combination of spite and fuck you money. I can do, I can do whatever I like. I can tell this stuff. And now suddenly, I don't know, is he on the leash? Has he been kind of brought in house? Is he over there at the US government's bidding? Uh, or is he still just the same, like slightly strange guy with um, the money and power to do whatever his strange inclinations lead him to? Well, I don't know if you read the Walter Isaacson biography of Elon, but there's a section in there where it kind of theorizes that he's he maybe has multiple personality disorder. Elon's a very tough guy to read. Like, you know, his affect will change on the drop of a hat. Um, I got accused of being Elon's personal, you know, uh, you know, errand boy. Um, whereas the reality was, you know, he, he's a source like anybody else I've worked for. And he, he was less powerful than the people I was reporting on. But when push came to shove, he ended up demanding of all of us, um, that we, well, not demanding, but if we were all Substack writers, uh, he wanted us to move to, you know, his platform and do Twitter subs, which is 
I guess was part of his plan all along was that he was mm. going to create these media celebrities and then he was going to propagandize them on Twitter and that was going to be this new thing. And I, I was so, I didn't see this coming. Like it, he asked me to, to, to move over and I, I thought he was kidding at first. And, um, and then we had a disagreement about it when he started stepping on Substack's links. And I, I asked him, I said, well, what would you have me do? And he, and he said, well, you, you should move to Twitter subs. And I said, I can't do that. And like, they would, it would call the reporting into question. They would say I had a financial relationship with you. And, you know, the, the whole, the whole project would be undermined. And beyond that, I don't want to do that. Like I, I'm happy where I am and, and the sort of independence is important to me. And, uh, you know, he didn't take that well. And he, he kind of threw a fit and, and released our, my, texts uh, publicly and um, and told me I was dead to him and get the fuck off Twitter and all kinds of other things like that. And, um, so I didn't see that coming. I, you know, whatever happened, I didn't think it, uh, it, it should have resulted in the kind of spleen that, that uh, came out. I, I, I had been, um, you know, pretty even keeled in my comments about him. And I, you know, I, I, tried to do this thing in a way that that reflected well on everybody uh but you know i think with elon he's all over the place sometimes you see him like that that go fuck yourself moment like it's hard not to feel a little bit of like yeah uh you know and, and cheer that but at the same time you know he will he'll, he'll roll over and and uh just collapse before somebody who demands that he he outlaw certain things like from the river to the sea um which you know goes completely against everything he's ever said about you know we're going to allow all legal speech on the platform yeah except uh, beautiful natural metaphors which uh, you know allegedly secretly mean do genocide Right, yeah, like if you're it's like a parody of the old, like, oh, this is a dog whistle thing that we used to hear about the outright and Trump. Right, and look, he's a complicated person, and he's got a lot of money, and that, and that's a hell of a combination. <laughs> yeah, that, that ends up being explosive sometimes. Um, but uh, you know, the only thing I can say about that is that our, our experience. In the first days of the Twitter files, you know, it's like a year. This was a year ago this week. I, I, I remember sitting down with Michael, Barry, and the others and looking at the material and saying, one way or another, this project is temporary. It's not going to last very long. Like this, this stuff, either they're going to put pressure on him um, or somebody's going to shut him down or he's going to realize that this is not great for his business or whatever it is. So let's just get as much as we can and get out while the getting you know the going is good and, and that ended up being more or less true i mean it, it lasted for three months and i think that was about as long as we could have pulled it off so mm -hmm. yeah. i kind of felt like that about elon in the first place when people were sort of panicking over the idea that he was gonna buy twitter it, it was sort of like well either he's sincere that he actually wants to you know, stand for free speech on this platform and roll back or expose some of this kind of censorship that's been going on, in which case, great. Or he's just like treading water and pursuing his own kind of crazy messed up ideas, in which case he's going to radically delegitimize this 
platform, which is the main platform on which this kind of managerial media layer does its business. This is where the people who believed in Russiagate, the people who wanted uh, anyone who questioned lockdowns and vaccines uh, banned, this is where they live. They live on Twitter. And, and this is their chosen environment where they get to preen themselves and, and be admired or get to say, oh, boo-hoo, I'm being bullied by uh, these uh, reply guys, etc." So I don't know. I, I think with, with, it's, a, it's a kind of similar deal. Like, you didn't expect that much. You got a a pretty great payload with that uh, of information with that Twitter files, but there was always a fuse burning with him. It's, it's that's kind of the role he has, and I think really anyone who's obsessed with his personality or, or, or his like, is he a good or bad guy is missing the point. The real point oh. is that we shouldn't have this level of inequality where uh, we get these kind of Lex Luthor uh, uh, kind of comic book billionaires able to um, make such transformations in our whole. Um, like life world on on a whim. Um, well, it's been fantastic um, getting this whole kind of sketch of like really the counter history of um, pretty much the last decade from you, Matt Taivi. We await with bated breath what else you're going to bring out on the subject of Keir Starmer, who really is a man of the next chapter. Uh, it, it, Oliver Eagleton's book on him shows how integrated he was with the Obama administration and the, the war on drugs, the war on uh, uh, terror, uh, long before he became a Labour MP. He kind of straddles that sort of do-gooder human rights um, uh, uh, aesthetic, as well as being a real deep state guy. And as you're already demonstrating, um, his campaign to take over the Labour Party and delegitimize Corbyn was basically manned by a lot of the same people who were key actors in the construction of this uh, online censorship regime. So there's a lot to watch out for and talk about in the future. And I hope that we can uh, check in again down Absolutely. the line. Uh, yeah, and, and and we're we have more stuff coming out, and there's a possibility that we have some very cool stuff coming up. But we'll, we'll that's kind of being negotiated right now. So, um, but we definitely have more, and we want it. We hate we hate that guy here, and we want to hear the whole damn thing. Uh, <laughs> Matt Taibbi, absolute pleasure and honor to have you on the Popular Show. Thanks so much for having me. I really appreciate it.